Virginia's Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile parkway running between Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. It is listed as a National Scenic Byway, constructed between 1930 and 1957. It links these communities. It is a nice, leisurely drive, free of semi-trucks, and shielded from view, with bridges that span chasms and rivers, and dense foliage all along the side of the road. It's the type of place you could picture a movie like Smokey and the Bandit taking place, although unlike that fictional Speed limits range from 35 to 45 miles an hour. It is part of the National Park Service's Colonial National Historic Park. And between October 1986 and September 1989, it was the site of at least eight unsolved murders. The first two victims, 27-year-old Kathleen Thomas a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, and her friend, 21-year-old Rebecca Andowski, were found on October 12, 1986, over the Columbus Day weekend. They were inside Thomas's white 1980 Honda Civic at the Chatham Annex Overlook near Williamsburg. Thomas, a Naval veteran as well as a police officer, drew considerable attention from law enforcement due to her line of employment. And while considerable resources were put into finding the killer or killers responsible, the case would soon grow cold. This is the Death Cast, and these are the Colonial Parkway Murders. Hello, and welcome to the Death Cast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me this week as we prepare to take a look at the still-unsolved Colonial Parkway murders. Before we get into our story for this week, however, we've got the normal plugs and show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, that would be Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Just search for Ian Totten, author. Click subscribe, like, or follow, and you're in. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek. If you would like to find out what's going on in the world of the Deathcast, as well as with my written works, you can go to my official website, CorpseCreekPublishing.com. There you can sign up for the mailing address. You can click on the donate button if you would like to help with the production of this show. Which, for those of you who have donated, it is greatly appreciated. I don't think many people realize it costs money every month to put this show up on all of the websites and podcasts apps that it is on. You can't just post this stuff for 
free. So if you'd like to leave a donation, buy me a pack of cigarettes or a cup of coffee, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. If you'd like to find any of my written works, you can find links on that website. You can also find them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever else it is that you get books. If they don't have my books in stock, you just tell them the name of the book that you're looking for. That can be any one of the Blood God trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, or The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, and they will order it for you. If you enjoy this show and want to let other people know about it, please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, share it on social media, and leave a five-star review. Those really do help with getting the show out there to new listeners. Alright, now that the plugs are out of the way, find yourself somewhere comfortable to sit, sit back, relax, kick your feet up, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As you heard in the trailer, we are covering the Colonial Parkway murders, which took place in Virginia from 1986 until 1989. Now, the Colonial Parkway runs from Jamestown in the West End to Yorktown on the East End, and along the way, it passes through Williamsburg. For those of you not familiar with the area, Yorktown is not very far from Newport News, which is in the Tidewater area of the state. There's a lot of highways that run through this particular area of the state. And because of this, there's a lot of traffic. Newport News is where the naval one of the naval shipyards is down there. It's where they dry dock aircraft carriers. And then you have further on the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which is in Portsmouth, Virginia. So this whole Tidewater area is very military-centric. You have Norfolk, where the largest naval base in the world is. You also have various marine bases and air force and I believe even a couple of army bases in the area. So it's a fairly populated area. Now the Colonial Parkway crosses over the York River in a few areas, as well as the James River. This area is fairly historic. The parkway is really a scenic route. It's not intended for heavy traffic, and as such... If you drive along it, you will see other cars, but you're not going to see as many as you would if you were to get on the other freeways in the area. And because of this, there are a lot of scenic pull-offs, areas that are shielded from view of the main road. But the road itself is really shielded from the other roads in the area area in that the fauna and wildlife on 
the sides of the highway have been unmolested. So if you were to drive along a road that runs parallel to it, you would not be able to see what is taking place on it. In fact, should you ever chance to go down there, it's a fairly desolate stretch of road that is patrolled by the National Park Service, you know, the Rangers. It's one of the few roadways going through national parks in the U.S. that is without tolls. That is to say, there are no gates at either end of the Colonial Parkway, so there's really no way for park rangers to know who is getting on and off of it. On October 9th, 1986, 27-year-old Kathy Thomas, a 1981 graduate of the Naval Academy, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, a 21-year-old student at William & Mary College, left the William & Mary computer lab together. I've seen a few different articles stating that the two of them had plans to go out for that weekend as it was something of a long weekend being Columbus Day weekend. But it does not appear as though you know red flags came up or anyone sounded the alarm when the couple was not seen. On October 12th, an individual was driving down the Colonial Parkway when they noticed a white Honda hatchback parked down an embankment almost as though it was intentionally hidden from view. This individual was able to get to a phone and call it in before going back to the scene. And when a patrolman arrived and went down to the car, he noticed that the windows were all up, the car was turned off, and that there appeared to be someone in the back seat. Upon opening the doors, it was learned that the per individual who was in the back seat was dead, and that was Rebecca Dowski. It was noted that they, she had rope burns on her wrist as well as around her neck and it was thought that she had been possibly killed by strangulation although this was difficult to tell for certain as her throat had been slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. All inside the car they also found the couple's purses with all of their money and other paperwork inside it. Upon further inspecting the vehicle, it was found that Kathy had been shoved into the hatchback area of the car. and She too had rope burns around her wrists and throat as well as the deep gash through the neck muscles. It was noted that neither woman appeared to have been physically assaulted beyond the knife wound to the throat and the rope burns and that there were no signs of a sexual assault. Although they did find a clump of hair between Kathy Thomas's fingers. 
It was also discovered that someone had poured diesel fuel all over the vehicle in an attempt to set it ablaze, although this did not take place. And it makes me wonder if the individual did not realize that diesel fuel has a much higher uh, ignition temperature than regular fuel, and it would take a much hotter burning fire in order to get it to ignite. The police, in conjunction with the National Park Service, put up flyers trying to find out any information that they could concerning the two murders, but unfortunately the case quickly went cold. And quickly want to point out that unlike in today's day and age where a lesbian couple being brutally murdered and left in a car would be labeled a hate crime and it would be all over nationwide news if not on, you know, worldwide... In those days, murders like this generally did not attract much outside attention, especially if it was what was seen as an isolated incident. They were not very far off from William and Mary College, and the police's thought process was the individual responsible for this was more likely than not a local Back then, uh, not so much nowadays, this area of Virginia, despite all the influx of new people who were in the military, you still had a lot of locals who had the mindset of, you know, we're not going to talk to police or anything like that. This is a local problem. So I'm sure there was a little bit of that going on in this case. I lived in the Tidewater of Virginia for a number of years back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and there was still a lot of that backwoods local yokel mentality among the people there where they didn't like outsiders coming into the area, they didn't want anything to do with them, and they did not like, you know, federal uh, police such as the U.S. Rangers Service, and they didn't want anything to do with them. So, armed with that knowledge, I I suspect that if anybody knew anything about the cases, just because of the fact that a this was two gay women and that you know they would have to go and interact with the police they weren't gonna say anything unless the police came to them and even then it was a crapshoot as to whether or not they would give up the information they had or hold it to themselves as i said the The case went cold until September of 1987. 20-year-old David Nobling had taken his younger brother, a cousin, and a 14-year-old named Robin Edward out to an arcade on September 19th. Now, after the day's activities, Nobling had taken everyone home dropping Edward off at her home before taking his cousin and brother 
back to his house. However, later that night, Robin Edwards snuck out of her house to meet with David, and it seems as though initially her parents did not report her as missing because Robin had a history of running away and they suspected that she had probably done so again. And I'm sorry it's not right to speak ill of the dead, but a 20-year-old man who is expecting a baby with his long-term girlfriend, you know, meeting up with a 14-year-old girl in the middle of the night, nothing about that is right to me. And it makes me wonder what type of person David may have been. It also makes me wonder what might have been going on in Robin's own home life that she would repeatedly run away and then, you know, go to hook up with a 20-year-old man. David's pickup truck was found in a parking lot near the James River, and it was noted that the engine was still running, the radio and windshield wipers were on, and that the driver's side window was partially rolled down. They also found two pairs of underwear, the couple's shoes, along with David's wallet, which led the police to think that they might have been up to some form of hanky-panky and an officer of the law may have shown up after which the two of them took off or possibly this, you know, unknown officer had taken them into custody. Although, why the vehicle would be left running and David's wallet would be left inside is a real head-scratcher. On September 22, 1987, two bodies were found washed up in the James River on the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. These bodies were found to be of David Nobling and Robin Edwards. Both of them had been shot in the head execution style, which is to say, from the back. So now we have four homicides along this stretch of highway, roughly, you know, within a year of each other, and the police have no suspects and no leads, although they do suspect that either someone who was a police officer or was at least posing as a police officer may have been responsible for them. The police ultimately tied these two cases together despite the fact that there was a difference of M.O. in the crimes. In the first series of murders, it appeared that the victims had been killed elsewhere and then placed inside of the vehicle as there was a severe lack of blood inside, while with the second set of crimes, the victims were removed from the car and then shot, not stabbed or bound, but shot in the back of the head before being thrown into the river. Just putting on my own detective hat for a moment, I'm wondering if the individual who did not come upon the second couple, this David and Robin, might not have come upon them in the course of their official duties and ordered them out of the vehicle. 
before getting them into a boat and driving them out into the James River, at which point they were executed. And I say that because the bodies were found next to each other, and it's very unlikely that two bodies thrown into the water would be found on the same date at the same time next to each other. More often than not, you'll have one that gets washed ashore while maybe the other one continues on in the James in the river to another point or, you know, makes its way out into the ocean, assuming that it's not, you know, the victim of animal predation. It almost makes me wonder if this particular scene was not staged in some way. As with the first series of murders, David and Robin's case soon went cold. Seven months later, on April 10th, 1988, Christopher Newport University students Cassandra Lee Haley, age 18, and Richard Keith Cole, age 20, went out on their first date together to a party in Newport News in the University Square area of the town. After leaving the party, the couple seemingly vanished from the face of the earth. The next day, April 11th, Richard Cole's 1982 red Toyota Celica was found unoccupied at the York River Overlook on the Colonial Parkway. Police noted at the time that the area that Richard's car was found in was about two miles from where the first couple, Kathy and Rebecca, had been discovered. It was also noted that Richard's wallet and Cassandra's purse were inside the vehicle, along with both individuals' clothes. So it seems almost as though they had gone out to this overlook to possibly park and pet, and maybe things kind of got a little bit serious, and then somebody came across them, or it could be that they had gone out there to talk and maybe make out and someone came upon them and ordered them out of the vehicle and stripped them down uh, before killing them although neither of their bodies have ever been found and I know you're probably thinking you know this is kind of you know nuts how could these vehicles be left on this parkway and not be seen or you know somebody wouldn't see something again this is a very desolate road it's not traveled very often specifically at this time of the year that we're talking about uh you know virginia was just coming out of the thaw of winter And unless you're a tourist traveling this road, very few locals go onto this road. And the National Park Service, they might send a patrol down it a few times a day. But if they see a car that's parked in, you know, a turnoff or a scenic overlook or something along those lines, 
They may just assume that the individuals in this car got out and went for a hike. Again, it's a very beautiful, rugged area. And people are want to do those types of things. So it's very possible that a park ranger may have seen the vehicle or another person might have seen this vehicle sitting there and just assumed that you know, whoever it belonged to had gotten out to go and gone for a walk, either to just, you know, walk through the woods or maybe go down and look at the river. Now, these two rivers feed eventually into the Atlantic Ocean, so it isn't surprising to me that, you know, they may never have been found if the individual who showed up and decided to kill them, threw them into the water. It's very likely that either they washed down stream and got caught somewhere that they would never be seen unless somebody was specifically looking for them or they continued on out into the you know waterway. Uh, I believe it's the Chesapeake Bay that the James River flows into before, you know, either going out into the ocean or again, you know, coming across a hungry sea animal that might have decided to, you know, take them for lunch. That stuff happens all the time. You know, when I was in the the service, we were on our way back into France and they pulled a body from the water, mind you. This is out in the Atlantic Ocean. And it was, you know, this person was thought to have been in the water for about two weeks or so, a victim of organized crime. But the amount of animal predation on this body, animal predation meaning animals that had feasted upon it, you know, was pretty significant. Fingers were missing, toes, that sort of thing. So, it's, you know, they were in the water, the body bloats with all the gases and what have you. If something came along and bit into that body, which released those gases, it would be very easy for that body to sink down below the water's surface and simply disappear. As with the other cases, the murder of Richard and Cassandra went cold fairly quickly. On September 5th, 1989, just after Labor Day, Daniel Lauer, age 21, and Anne Maria Phelps, age 18, went missing. It's important to note with this particular case that Daniel and Anne Maria were not dating. Anne Maria was actually dating Daniel's younger brother. The two of them were driving to said brother's home in Virginia Beach. And the car that they were traveling in was found abandoned at the New Kent rest stop on I-64. Interestingly, they had been traveling eastbound, but the vehicle was found on the west side of the highway. And this actually threw the police off as they couldn't figure out why it would be that they would were heading in one direction only to turn around. 
my own speculation is that either they realized they had forgotten something along the way and decided to go back and get it, or perhaps for some reason they were forced to turn around either by a law enforcement officer or by some other unknown. The car was found in a rest stop, and Anne Maria's purse was found inside of the vehicle. And it's unclear if police initially linked the disappearance of the young couple to the Colonial Parkway murders, or if that happened after the fact, as initially there were no bodies. However, that changed when some hunters who were on a logging road near Interstate 64 between Williamsburg and Richmond discovered a blanket, and underneath this blanket, the badly decomposed bodies of two individuals, at which point the police were contacted, with police noting that one of the bodies was possibly stabbed, that being of Anne Maria Phelps. After this, however, the case, as with the others, went cold. Now, the local police linked all of these cases together. However, if you look at the MOs of these crimes, it seems unlikely that the same person did them just based on the known methods of murder. The first case you have a couple being, you know, bound, strangled, and their throats cut. Well, in the second case, you have the individuals being shot in the back of the head, execution style, almost like it was a mob hit. The third case, we are uncertain how the individuals was killed. However, some police have speculated that they believe the individuals were stabbed to death. And with the third case, again with Phelps, it is thought that they were stabbed. Also of interest, only two of the cases that are, you know, colloquially called the Colonial Parkway murders have anything like a close distance between each other, which I believe is the first and third murders. So at least to me, it's very unlikely that these so-called lovers, lanes, murders were committed by the same individual. Uh, it's very possible that the first murder was entirely separate from the other three. Personally, I think the second set of Murders that would be David and Robin who were shot. I, I really think that they came across somebody who was probably either 
posing as a police officer was in fact a police officer for whatever reason he decided the two of them had to be gotten rid of well the third and fourth murders in there's evidence that they were stabbed to death the first set of murders however that is the one that you know really stands out because it was so different from what we know of any of the other crimes in fact a retired police officer turned private investigator has gone on the record as stating that he does not believe that the first crime is related to the other three and his reasons for this are fairly compelling now Steve Spingola a retired detective was hired by one of the families of the murdered and he ended up putting out an article a 29 page article concerning the crimes and according to Spingola the murders of Kathy and Rebecca shared many similarities with a double homicide that took place in the Shenandoah National Park. And we're going to briefly go over that. In May of 1996, Julianne Williams, age 24, and her 26-year-old girlfriend, Laura Winnens went on a camping trip along the Appalachian Trail at the Shenandoah National Park. This is also in Virginia. It's about 180 miles west of the Colonial Parkway. The two of them decided to take this trip as Julianne was preparing to start a new job in Lake Champlain, Vermont, and they were planning, I believe, on spending the weekend there. They took with them their golden retriever. The last time either woman was seen alive was on May 24th, and if I'm remembering this case correctly, at the time there was an individual seen on the trail with him who was said to be pestering the two women and the other hikers on the trail. You gotta remember this is the Appalachian Trail, if I'm not mistaken. This is actually the start of the Appalachian Trail. So this specific area, the Shenandoah National Park, it sees a lot of traffic. It's the type of area where they have A-frames set up for individuals to camp the night out all along the trail as they wake their way through the Appalachian Trail. So this individual was seen, you know, bothering these women, bothering other people, and then they were not seen again, this again on the 24th of May. Naturally, when the women's families did not hear back from them, they contacted the authorities who went out to the trail to see if they could find anybody who might have seen them because a lot of these people walking the Appalachian Trail would, you know, might spend a couple of days in a specific area before moving on to, you know, the next leg of their trip. 
and it was at this period of time that they learned about this mystery man who was harassing them. On June 1st, they found the women's bodies about a quarter mile from the Skyline Drive, which is just off the Appalachian Trail. And again, if I'm remembering correctly, their campsite was kind of set off the beaten path of the trail. And the two women were bound with their mouths gagged and both of their throats were slit. With their dog later being found near the White Oak Canyon Trail. So there you can see the similarities between this murder that took place in 1996 and the murder of Kathleen and Rebecca almost a decade beforehand in 1986. The detective Spingola has gone on the record in this article he wrote stating that he thinks that both of these crimes were hate crimes aimed at the two couples because they were lesbians. It's because of this that he does not think the crimes are connected, which does hold up under at least, you know, the most tentative of scrutiny as far as the M.O. is very similar, you know, really in almost all respects, although we don't know how brutal the, you know, assault on the women's throats were in the 1996 murder. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there was actually, you know, evidence that some form of sexual assault took place in the Shenandoah In the case of Julianne Williams and Laura Winnens, suspects were named, specifically a Maryland resident by the name of Daryl David Rice. In July of 1997, he was arrested for the attempted abduction of a female bicyclist in the Shenandoah National Park, to which he pleaded guilty and received an 11-year sentence. In April of 2002, he was charged with Julianne and Laura's murders. This really based on circumstantial evidence, which for those of you who look at circumstantial evidence and throw it out the window, the majority of cases are built on circumstantial evidence with the overall picture being formed by said evidence. This guy... Rice was known to have a fairly deep-seated hatred of women. He was also known to hate homosexuals, telling investigators that he quote-unquote hated gays and preyed on women because quote-unquote they were more vulnerable than men. He also further stated that the two women deserved to die because they were gay further implicating him in the crimes, Rice was seen entering the park on May 25th and 26th, and at least one witness saw him in the general vicinity where the bodies were discovered. Unfortunately, despite all this, you know, incriminating 
circumstantial evidence, Rice was not charged with this crime and they eventually dropped these charges. But Rice's story doesn't end there because the police charged him with another murder, that of Elisa Faye Shill Walter Reynolds, who was murdered in Culpeper, Virginia on March 2nd, 1996, which is just a few short months before the Shenandoah murders. Shill Walter had left the, her home in Baltimore to drive to Charlottesville, Virginia so that she could meet with her mother and the two of them could go shopping at a mall. Showalter never arrived. Showalter's mother called the husband and said that her daughter had not been had not yet arrived and she suspected this might have been due to the inclement weather conditions. But after several hours, the mother, a woman by the name of Sadie, left. Alicia's car was found around 6 p.m. along a highway near Culpeper, Virginia. There was a napkin on the window, which indicated that she had had car trouble, although it was later determined that there was nothing, in fact, wrong with the, the vehicle. The following day, the police set up roadblocks and talked to numerous witnesses who all stated that they had seen Alicia talking with a man driving a blue pickup truck along Route 29, and it was later found that close to 30 different women stated they had been harassed by a man driving that route and that this man who was harassing them was driving a blue pickup truck. The unidentified man would get up behind the vehicles and flash his lights and honk his horn, yelling at the women, screaming that there was something wrong with their car. A number of these women stated that they went with the man and he took to a payphone where they called for help for their vehicle and that there was no reported incidents, you know, of the man doing anything odd other than, you know, flagging them down. With at least a few of these witnesses stating that when they ignored the man, he got angry at them and drove off in a huff. One woman claimed that about a week before Alicia went missing, uh, a similar situation had happened along Route 29 when a man in a blue pickup truck started flashing his lights, honking his horn, yelling at her that something was wrong with the vehicle, and he offered her a ride, which she accepted. Although, unlike the other stories police heard, the man apparently attacked her shortly after getting her inside of the truck and the woman was able to escape, leaping from the vehicle and breaking her ankle in the process. On May 7th, Alicia's body was found in a wooded area 15 miles southeast of where she had last been seen, with the police speculating after the fact that this these scenes with the pickup truck along Route 29 might have been practice runs for a budding serial killer, which eventually led them to 
the aforementioned Daryl Rice. The reason he was linked to this particular case is that his father lived along Route 29 and he drove a similar pickup truck to the man who was known as the Route 29 Stalker. It's interesting to note that Rice, when he was charged with Alicia's murder, was also charged with the Route 29 Stalker cases. However, because of a lack of evidence, they had to drop the charges as they relate to Elisa Showalter, and Rice eventually took a plea bargain pleading guilty to one of the stalker cases, that of the woman who leapt from his truck and broke her ankle. And he got 11 months for this. This was on top of the 11-year sentence that he was already serving, and at least from what I could find, it looks like Daryl Rice has been in and out of prison ever since then, with the last thing coming up that he had been given a nine-month sentence for violating his parole, along with an 18-month supervised release. Now, it should be noted that police have DNA evidence in at least three of the original murders from the Colonial Parkway slaying, although from everything I could see, it doesn't appear that the DNA has been linked to any suspect as of yet. While with the Shenandoah double homicide, Rice has been cleared due to DNA evidence as they found DNA from an unknown male at the crime scene that did not match that of Rice. There's another suspect in that last homicide, that last double murder, and that would be serial killer Richard Ivanitz, who I will be covering in another episode. Should be noted that Ivanitz was in Virginia at the time of the Colonial Parkway murders and was in fact in his late 20s at the time. Although, again, police have not released any DNA evidence findings in relation to any of these killings. So, if you have any information about these particular crimes, you can contact the Virginia Crime Stoppers, probably through their website. Uh, I'm not going to go and look up their phone number at this moment, but a quick Google search will turn it up for you. That's, you know, the Colonial Parkway murders, which took place from 1986 to 1989, and the 1996 double homicide in Shenandoah State Park. That's going to do it for the death cast this week. I apologize that it's a shorter episode than normal. Uh, Sometimes that's just the way the cases come out. Again, if you enjoy this show, please 
subscribe on your favorite podcast app, share it on social media, leave a five-star review, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, sign up for my mailing list. While you're there, please consider making a donation to the DeathCast. Again, the money goes to help with the production of this show as it isn't free to put the show up on all the various websites as well as keep up the archive on all of those websites. Till next week, I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid. Welcome, welcome, welcome to, to the, the Dead Cast.